Welcome to Real Estate Investing in the Real World Podcast. The topic of this episode is the five rules of rental property. Follow these five rules and owning that property or properties will be a rich and rewarding experience. If you fail in any one of these five or more than one, it could be a miserable nightmare. You see, real estate ownership is a paradox. From one perspective, rental property is the best investment vehicle that exists. And I compared it to cryptocurrency and to stocks and to startups and every other major financial instrument and real estate beats them all. It's the best. But you may know people and you yourself may have experienced the exact opposite. The, the nightmare that a rental property can be. So what gives? What's the difference? It's these five rules I'm going to share with you. And I've developed these rules over my 20 years in this business. I own millions and millions and millions of dollars in real estate. But I have also been a part of or I have experienced through getting feedback thousands and thousands of other deals. I've seen what works and what doesn't over a very long period of time. So these five rules is taking all of that and simplifying it for you. When you follow these five rules, you're going to be very happy you did. I think you're also going to see if you own rental property or if you have in the past, you're going to agree. You're going to say, oh, I did that wrong. Yeah, good point. I should have done that. So let's dive in. Rule number one is the most important. Follow this rule and if you don't follow the other four, you're probably going to still be okay. You missed this one and you failed miserably. And I'm going to argue if you're not going to reach this productivity level, then just don't own rental property. That's how serious this is. Productivity is something that is almost always completely missed from the entire subject of owning rental property. And I've never understood it. My entire career, I've never understood this. Why doesn't Everyone talk about this metric. Now, I have no name for it except for what I call the productivity metric. And I'm going to say that you need to be at least a 12% productivity. And this is how it's calculated. We're going to take net operating income. You may have heard this phrase before. It's also called NOI. NOI. This is going to tell you how much income the property produces, but not taking into account any debt payments. So this is instead going to take into account, here we go, you're going to take your gross income, and that's going to be what the tenants are paying you, and you're going to subtract those expenses that you would have whether or not you had a loan against the property. What's an expense? It's going to be property taxes, right? What's another expense? It's going to be insurance. We're also talking about management. You see, rental property has the ability for you to hire a manager. And I know I have a video from back in the day talking about how everyone should be a manager in the very, very beginning so that they can learn what management's all about. However, you ultimately always want to hire a property manager. You want someone else dealing with it so you can truly have a hands-off asset. So you need to be able to account for management as a cost. But what's another cost in rental property that often is ignored? Oh, that's right, maintenance. Because you know what? Real estate does degrade. Things do go down. And I'm going to put one more in. And this is going to be for what I call replacement savings. 
Recall that at some point you're going to need a new roof. At some point you're going to have potentially the need to replace an AC system, a heat system. And what some do in this situation is they'll do a cash out refinance in five years or 10 years. And that's what they use as their replacement savings. So that, that can be done. But these expenses, these go against your gross income. And then once you get down there, now you have this thing called NOI. That's your net operating income. All right, so let's give an example of calculating NOI. So let's say that you own a property right now that you've been living in, but you're going to move out of it and you're going to turn it into a rental property. People do this all the time. It's almost always a big mistake because the property never gets anywhere near the 12% productivity mark. So it's a good example. Let's say if you moved out, you could rent your property for $2,000 a month. I'm going to multiply that by 12 just so we can talk in terms of yearly numbers. And I'm going to say that this is what your total gross income would be for the year. Gross income right there for the year is $24,000. But now we're going to subtract out some things. And again, assuming you own the property free and clear, you still have to pay taxes. Let's say you have to pay $4,000 in taxes for the year. And you might be saying, only $4,000? Where's that at, Phil? Well, it's places like Tennessee, not places like New Jersey or Texas. All right, so then you have insurance. And let's say it's a rental property policy and they're a little bit higher than normal. So let's say it's $2,000 for insurance on that. And then we have management. What do we mean by management? We mean that you have a property manager that's typically charging you 10%. So on $24,000, that's $2,400 for management. And then we have this thing called maintenance. And how do we really calculate maintenance? Well, it certainly depends on how new certain items in your property are. But let's say, for the sake of this illustration, we'll do $2,000 for maintenance. All right, so now the way we're going to calculate net operating income is we've taken the gross income, we've estimated $24,000, we're going to take all of these things out of it. Okay, so that gets us to eight, so that's uh, $10,400, so that gets us to, uh, to $13,600. This becomes our NOI, our net operating income. So if our net operating income is this, then what we're now going to do is try to figure out how we get to a 12% productivity. And this is how that's done. With calculating how much you have, I know this sounds like a goofy phrase, how much you have in it. How much you have in it. And that's going to be what you purchased the property for plus what you did maybe in rehab, what you did maybe in putting in furniture, if it was a vacation rental, it's how much you're in it. Now, going back to my example of you moving out of your primary residence, turning it into rental, your in it number would be at that moment in time what you could sell it for. Okay, so it's a little different, but it's the same concept. In it. In it's how much you're in the deal. So if you have the choice of either to sell it or turn it into a rental, well, now what we're looking at is what you could sell it for. Okay, so let's say for your, your $2,000 a month property, $24,000 a year, let's say your in it number, which is extremely uh, conservative, is $250,000. If your in it number is $250,000, we're going to figure out productivity, but what we're going to do is we're going to put NOI over in it. NOI over in it. $13,600. Divided by 250,000, that's how much you're in it. And guess what that equals, ladies and gentlemen? 0 0.544, or 
or if you move that decimal place over twice, you get a 5.44% productivity. So that kind of sucks, Phil. Yep, sure does. You might say, wait a minute. You're saying I have to do deals that are more than double that number? Yes, I am. But Phil, those are difficult to find. Well, they are if you don't know what you're looking for. And yes, they're not the majority of deals. I would argue this rule alone knocks out at least 80, if not 90% of all rental properties you could purchase. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. You might say, but wait a minute, Phil. I see these big hedge funds. They're paying $250,000 for properties that rent for $2,000 a month. They're, they're buying those left and right. They sure are. But so what? Who cares? That has nothing to do with you personally. Remember, what we're trying to do is we're trying to ensure that you have a rich and rewarding experience with your rental property, not misery, not nightmares. This right here, this is terrible, and this is commonplace. And what do people do? They look at metrics like cash on cash return. They say, okay, well, if I can bring in this much in, in net operating income, and then I, let's say, for example, you know, once I put a loan on this thing, let's say in, this number gets brought down to 7,000, but if I only have to put in 20,000, I have a pretty decent cash on cash return of almost 30%. And my argument is that doesn't matter. We need to look at productivity. Productivity is how well that asset performs regardless of the loan. It performs that way because it throws off a lot of cash relative to expenses and more importantly, relative to what you're in it, what you can purchase it for and in the case of if you have to have rehab. All right, is everybody clear on this? Productivity is NOI divided by in it. And when you divide those numbers, you come up with a percentage. So it's going to be a point zero something. And then that's when you move over the decimal. And now you have this thing called a percentage. Make sense? Follow this rule and the rest will pretty much fall in place. Not follow this rule and you're going to have misery at some point as a rental property owner. So rule number one is your productivity, your NOI divided by your in it needs to be 12% or more. Now, me personally, I demand from myself 20% or more. I have some properties that have done up, upwards of 30, 35% productivity. Focus on productivity and the rest will fall in place. So what are the rest? Let's talk about number two. It's pretty simple. Equity, 30% or more. So equity is how much the property would sell for versus how much you have borrowed against it. You've heard me say that not borrowing money against rental property is financially irresponsible. But there is a caveat. You do have to have some equity and that allows you to sell the property quickly if you need to. There are situations where you have to pull the ripcord and get out of a deal quickly and that's what equity provides you. The goal of equity is not so that you cash flow more. In a perfect world, you could fully leverage, but you don't want to fully leverage. You don't want to have a 100% loan on the property because you might need to sell the property. Now, some people say, well, does that mean, Phil, that I have to put 30% down? Well, not necessarily. You might be able to buy a rental property 
that you do some value add to it, you create that equity, you might buy a property in such a way where it's well below market at the time you buy it, so you already have the equity when you start, uh, you might be able to structure owner financing with a seller. It's usually very difficult to do that and build in equity, but it's humanly possible. And some of my apprentices have done it if they've marketed hard enough for motivated sellers that are, uh, that are off market. But moreover, and I think this is the key element on this topic here, it's not just the fact that you have equity, but that you've invested money in a property in most cases. You know, rental property is not about no money down, super creative techniques. That is usually for our short-term investment strategies. Long-term holds are about you already having some money and wanting to invest that wisely. And again, you may not put 30% down, you might put 10% or 15 or 20, but you have 30% equity either right as you purchase or within the first couple months, within the first six months, so that you have room in the deal if you ever have to sell. Look, we all do our calculations and we hope that that's the productivity, but you may discover that it's not as productive as you thought. This has happened to me plenty of times. I've sold properties before where the person recognizes me and they go, wait a minute, you're selling this? This must not be a good deal then. And I'll say, no, no, here are the numbers. I can show you all of the financials. Yeah, for most people, it's a good deal, but I demand a productivity number of 20%. And they're like, wow, this thing's very good deal. I said, yeah, to you, it's a good deal. To me, it's, it's trash. I'm, I'm getting rid of it. And you're going to still make you know, money that you were hoping for. So I've had to sell properties that I thought had great productivity, but in the end, they were decent, they weren't great, and I had a place to put that money into something more productive. So by having this kind of equity, you can get out and get out quick. This is a pretty simple rule, and many of you are already following this, and if you own rental property for a couple of years, then you've got your built-in equity from the real estate appreciation that's occurred over the last couple of years. So this rule is pretty simple, but stick to it. Rule number three is to have at least six months of reserves. These are six months of all of the expenses you'd have to pay built up in savings just sitting there in reserves. So reserves gives you the ability to ensure that if something goes wrong, you can easily handle it. That could be the tenant doesn't pay, you have to put them through the eviction process, pay the attorneys. It could be something else. We had that uh, issue with the eviction moratorium. It could be that there's a problem, an AC goes out, something goes out that you weren't prepared to handle. Having a good solid reserve allows you to rest easy. You can handle the problems. And as you add more and more units, more and more rental properties, and you do this to each one, it really collects that war chest. This allows you to rest easy at night. Now, there's another part to this, and you may have already been asking yourself the question, why 12%? If you have to sit on cash, that is cash that you're not earning any money. In fact, it's going backwards, right? It's, it's inflation is sucking the value out of your reserves. That's true. You have to periodically add to your reserves to deal with the inflation. But also we talked about the idea of 30 or more percent equity. So let's say you did a max leverage of 70% and let's say your interest rate was 6%. Okay, so 6% that you're paying each year of the 70%, that's basically 4.2 taken away from your 12 productivity number, isn't it? And so then you also have these, which takes away from your productivity number. These items here build this fortress of a great rental property, but these things have a cost. 
And so that's why this number is where it's at because we have to account for all these costs of all these additional rules so you have this bulletproof, if you will, asset. So part of how you prepare for a rainy day, part of how you prepare for the worst is you have a very solid amount of reserves. Rule number four is how you also prepare for the worst. Insurance. True story, last night, 9.30 p.m., I get a text from a fellow investor that says, Phil, there is a 40-acre wildfire within a mile of some of your cabins in Pigeon Forge. So, of course, I'm on there looking at the reports from the fire department, and I'm reaching out to my property management, telling the tenants to evacuate and all that stuff. It's real. Things can go real wrong in real estate, such as fires, such as floods, such as hurricanes, such as tornadoes. So insurance. Insurance is how you also sleep well at night. Now, I'm not a huge fan of the insurance industry because I feel like it's always a battle with them. However, we need to look at where insurance plays its key role, and it's this, in catastrophe. You see, reserves is going to handle almost all of the problems. The 99% of problems, your reserves are going to handle those. The insurance is when everything hits the fan, and it's a real, real catastrophe. Now, thankfully, there is a huge, huge rain uh, system that went through, and about as soon as the fire really started to roar last night, the rain came down super heavy, and the latest reports here this morning is that everything is good. The tenants have returned to the property. Yes, they can still see the smoke smoldering, and they can probably smell it, but apparently that rain, thank you Lord, hallelujah, has quelled that fire. So insurance comes into play when there is an almost absolute loss. And so here's the strategy with insurance, high deductible. The higher you raise your deductible, the lower your cost per year, the lower your insurance costs. Now we go high deductible because we go high reserves. See how this is all fitting together like a puzzle? High deductible, high reserves. However, this is where the offset is. You're going to want more than full replacement. So they're going to have their calculator, and they're going to calculate what the replacement's going to be for the structure. They don't obviously replace the land. Well, you want to push, push, push that envelope as high as you can push it. So in January was when my uh, policies renewed for all my cabins, and I had pushed, 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 pushed it up. Why? Number one, material cost. Number two, labor cost. You know how expensive it is to replace what you have as a rental property? You may not. And you may need to push, push, push it higher. Because if that fire would have burned down my cabins and I would have been underinsured, that would have sucked. But I wasn't underinsured. I was prepared. I had pushed these up in January as high as I could push them. There's a point at which the insurance company won't go any higher. And that's about where you want to be. So you try to offset that cost, the fact that you can get it lower in the, in the higher deductible, that's offset by you pushing that full replacement beyond full replacement into more than, and that's the way I like to use the phrase. So that if you do have to replace that asset, remember, we're talking about a highly productive asset. You have great equity, so you're not too worried, if you will, about the whole rebuild process, but you do want it rebuilt. You want it back. And so when you want that asset back, if you care that much about it, 
make sure that that replacement is as high as you can get that number because if the day comes when that tornado just knocks it down or wildfire, if those kind of things happen, you want to be able to pay a good contractor, a good home builder, get the right materials. Ideally, you make a couple of adjustments to that property to make it even better than it was before. And you have to account, of course, for the loss in rental. Usually these insurance policies have a rental loss in there as well, but it's never as much. So you have those losses as well. Does that make sense? Go as high as you can on replacement. Now again, we're not talking about a ton of properties here because you still have to hit this productivity number. What we're talking about is this collection you're building of just incredible assets. And so if it's that good, you want to be able to rebuild it if things hit the fan. Rule number five is that these properties that you're collecting are highly sustainable operations for the long haul. Meaning, number one, it's something you can stomach for the long haul. You can own these for decades or more. And so there are techniques such as maybe buying properties in the worst parts of town and putting Section 8 tenants in there. And maybe you can hit that number or better. And you can do all of these other items. But you don't really want to be a part of that. Or maybe you'd love to be a part of that. So you have to be in a position where you're willing to be the owner of that property for the long haul. It's something you can stick with. Because the longer you own a rental property, the better everything gets. Number one, your equity goes up whether or not you work at it. Number two, your reserves can, can continue to collect. Your productivity may go way up. For example, remember that the productivity number is based on what you have in it. Not based on what the value of the property is at that moment in time. That You might look at this number, uh, this statistic, and say, hey, Phil, that's a cap rate. Well, it is, but it's not. Um, cap rate is usually used for, for market value of commercial real estate. And what they're doing is they're doing NOI divided by purchase price, and then that's how they're dividing. But they're switching that around so they can determine what the purchase price is based on the market cap rate. So instead, what we're saying is you need to be a part of something that you love that you can stick with down the stretch because all these different things get better. I just read a statistic that Austin, Texas rental rates on average went up by 40% in one year. Orlando's went up by almost 30% in one year on average. I mean, these are the kinds of things that you benefit from when you own something long-term. And you've probably seen it in your life where you look at someone else and say, man, I wish I got in when they did. The key was not when they got in, it's that they were able to keep it that long. So it needs to be sustainable long-term. The actual asset itself needs to be something in and of itself that's going to last the long haul. You know, everybody needs a place to live, right? But not everybody needs an office space. Not everybody needs retail space. So there are certain commercial real estate assets, for example, that really aren't going to be in demand potentially 10 20 years from now. People will always need a place to live, especially affordable housing. Some have asked me, well, Phil, how sustainable is vacation rentals? In certain markets, I think they're incredibly sustainable very, very long term because people will always be traveling to those areas. People are always going to be vacationing. People are always going to be staying in hotels. There's always going to be a, a segment of the population that's collecting their family for some event. So I think vacation rentals can be extremely long term as well. Highly sustainable long term ultimately means that you're a collector, that you're collecting great trophy assets, and that as you add those to your portfolio, those become treasures, and they feed you for a lifetime, and you get the tax benefits, and you get the income, and you get the appreciation. So in order for this whole thing to come together, it starts with this, great productivity. But here's the key. The productivity is at the time you, you purchase or, or, or thereafter, after you do your value add, maybe six months or a year later. 
But after that, it's all gravy. It only gets better from there. You know, uh, your equity only gets built up over time. And so what ends up happening is when you can be sustainable long term, when you can hold these assets for the long haul, everything really comes together. And it's five years later, it's seven years later, it's 10 years later, and you're like, wow, that was smart. This is a recipe for incredible wealth building and a great financial life. I am going to do a follow-up on what types of properties can pull these kind of numbers, can execute on these kind of uh, rules. Also, if you don't know who I am, I'm Phil Pustiowski with FreedomMentor.com. And I've got a book, How to Be a Real Estate Investor, which if you haven't read this already, uh, I give it away for free. Feel free to grab that free copy. Uh, if you want to work with me and my team, I do mentor, and we turn people into money-making machines. Now, primarily, our business is helping them get to enough money so they can buy these assets. We teach them the short-term techniques. We also teach these long-term techniques as well, but primarily, our focus has always been helping people create enough money so they can go out and buy these kind of assets and that way they are set for life financially.